the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Many in society today constantly criticize girls, leaving them to grow up feeling inadequate, silenced, and like they're not enough. Joining us today is Sadie Radinsky, a major voice in a new generation of people redefining wellness. Sadie is a blogger and recipe creator who has touched the lives of girls and women worldwide with her award-winning website, wholegirl.com. Sadie offers ideas, advice, and practices for young women to help them celebrate all of themselves. She is the author of the book, Whole Girl, Live Vibrantly, Love Your Entire Self, and Make Friends with Food. Welcome, Sadie. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Joan. So excited to be here. So, Sadie, you made your mark on the world by 18 years old. How did you get started doing this work? I got started with this actually nine years before. So I went gluten-free when I was nine because I'd been having these stomach issues for half a year. And going gluten-free actually sparked this exploration into the world of food and cooking and health and well-being. So I started baking myself gluten-free treats. And that sort of got me into the entire world of food. And I discovered how food could not only impact my life on a health level, because going gluten-free completely transformed my health, but it could also bring so much joy and excitement into my life because, you know, cooking gluten-free desserts became my favorite part of life. So this really had a transformation on my life because it made me realize that you know, our relationships with food as teen girls are often so strained because we are sort of conditioned by society to view food as this shameful thing we have to contend with. But this experience, this positive experience with food made me realize that it has so much to offer us and that there's a great power in cooking for ourselves that can help, it can help us embrace food as a friend. So um, when I was nine, I started baking when I was 12. I started sharing my recipes on a blog and then I started writing the book at 14 and sort of infusing my recipes with my ideas about food and overall empowerment and well-being for girls. I think it's such an important message. I mean, I'm a little bit older than you, (laughs) but I can remember (laughs) growing up, you know, feeling that a a woman or a, a girl needed to look a certain way in order to be beautiful. I can't imagine what it must be like for young girls today with all of the social media and all of the connection. I mean, we used to go to school and you would get teased a little bit and you got the messages on, you know, in the old days on our three Mm -hmm. television channels. But to get that message, in all seriousness, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, from so many different sources, I, I just can't even imagine what that's like for a young girl to be told. You're not enough. You're just not smart enough. Don't eat so much. Don't be so emotional. Yeah. What is it like yeah. today for a young girl to get told all the time? Yeah, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's like that's that's literally what social media is, is an algorithm designed to make us feel inadequate so that we, we stay hooked. That's exactly what it is. And you know, the the like button and the follow button themselves 
um, I think automatically make us feel inadequate <laughs> yeah. because we're, because I think a lot of people, it's become more common discourse to, to be able to talk about how we, you know, we all compare ourselves to other people's bodies um, on social media. I feel like that's become more talked about, which is good. But I think something we don't talk about as much is just how the app in general is made to make us feel badly about ourselves. Like I use my Instagram for business, so I don't really just follow many other people my age. It's mostly following food bloggers. But I still end up feeling badly every time I'm on there. And it's not even because of other people's bodies. It's because of um, comparing myself to other people's productivity or to their followers they're getting for their business, to everything. Mm -hmm. So my point is that I think it goes so deep, the comparison on social media, and it makes us feel like we're not enough in every facet of our lives, whether it's our body isn't perfect enough or we're not productive enough. I think during the pandemic, there's a lot of feeling on social media of seeing other people doing really incredible things or even traveling, um, <laughs> which is a whole other tangent I could go on, but people, you know, being really productive or something like that. And then you look at yourself and you're like, why am I not being productive? You know, why am I feeling so down? And I think it can disconnect us from ourselves. I think it takes us out of our bodies, out of our um, emotions and sort of numbs us. Um, so, you know, one of my biggest tips throughout the book, um, each chapter of the book is a different mood. So there's things like be afraid, be brave, be bossy, be mad. And in almost every chapter, I end up giving some sort of tip that's get off social media if you can. Mm -hmm. And even just taking, you know, an hour off social media a day or something, setting aside some time, I think it can help us reconnect with ourselves with, you know, literally feel our physical sensations, feel any emotions that come up. And that brings us into the moment. And I think just having these little points of connection with ourselves every day can have a really big impact because it, it breaks us out of that comparison mode um, and, and brings us sort of back into our bodies. What's so interesting about what you're saying, Sadie, I, I joked a few minutes ago about being slightly older than you, but, you know, you're in one generation, you're 18, I'm middle age, I'm in my, my 50s, and everything you just described is something that I and women of my age feel as well. So it's intergenerational. Yeah. And the thing that's important that I learned, because when I went through a lot of trauma and loss in my own life, and I would go on social media, I did exactly what you said. It, it would send me spiraling yeah. because I would, you know, you'd see everybody showcasing what I call their A game because nobody tells you anything yeah. bad on social media. Yeah. So I'm looking yeah. at all of these families getting together when I just lost my family, or I'm looking mm. at all these, you know, hallmark moments thinking that everyone else has that and I don't. And like you said, it, it's not good for us to get into that comparison mode. We have to remember yeah. that's someone's A-game. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the app leaves so much up to our self-control, which is like scary because I don't think I can control myself with it. You know, it's an addictive, it's designed to be addictive. And I think it leaves too much up to logic <laughs> that, mm -hmm. that we don't have because you can, we can tell ourselves like, you know, that's someone's A-game, that's not the real life. But it, But it even like, I feel like it sort of penetrates that even and, and goes into our subconscious. And even if we tell ourselves logically, this is not real life, it's just a facade everyone's putting out there, it still gets to us. Okay. So I'm, you know, I'm personally trying to figure out a way that I can use social media in my own life just that's, that feels better for me. But yeah, it's really hard. And I think especially during the pandemic, it's especially hard because nobody's talking about how we're really feeling during the pandemic on social media. Um, so I feel like more than ever, it's, it's such a false representation of how we're all feeling. And I'm, you know, I'm <laughs> totally a perpetrator of this, you know, like posting about happy things in the book. And some days I feel really sad about, about the state of the world. So that's sort of the, you know, the idea of us tuning into all of our different moods that's in whole girl is like, how can we, connect with ourselves on a daily basis and, you know, get in touch with the things that we're not, we're not putting out there on the internet. Well, you know, we, we always said that Madison Avenue manipulated the way we felt and it played into our insecurities. And, and like I was saying, mm -hmm. I can't even imagine the way social media and all of this messaging is playing into someone's insecurities. Yeah. You mentioned the pandemic, 
you have a media platform. I'm sure you saw the same thing. Our numbers skyrocketed because we had a captive audience. And if someone isn't using the power of their platform for something that's going to be nurturing, Uh if they're using it for the wrong purpose, it can cause Uh so much destruction. Uh Yeah, yeah. And it can also cause, I feel like also from like an entrepreneurial experience, you know, perspective, I've been feeling this during the pandemic is like, you also feel pressure that if you're not using your platform enough during this time, that that you're like doing something wrong or missing out. And it's, there's just so many, there's just so many feelings of what we should be doing constantly. And this is something I always struggle with is like, letting myself know that whatever I'm doing is enough in any given moment. And I think a lot of that, you know, feeling of inadequacy is the product of this social media age and this age of instancy and and just how we see everyone putting out there so much stuff, everyone progressing even during the pandemic, which is incredible. And like, I think there's a lot out there um, because we're all sharing so much of what we're doing, which has, you know, upsides as well, totally. But I think... um, because we're seeing, sometimes it can cause comparison also, you know, seeing people like, wow, they're doing so much good stuff during the pandemic. Why am I not? And, you know, I've, I've tried to get better with myself at, you know, telling myself that whatever I'm doing in the moment is valid, even if I'm not productive, even if I'm not, you know, changing the world in any way at the moment, just like letting myself letting myself be okay in this moment with whatever I'm doing. I don't know if you've ever struggled with this too, but I think this is something that a lot of people have probably been feeling as well during the pandemic. Um, No, I I agree with you. No, like whatever you're doing is okay. (laughs) No, I absolutely agree with you. But, but you know, I think that the messaging, your book, whatever it is that you're doing, and it doesn't have to be anything grand. I mean, it's one person at a time, Yeah. whatever it is you're doing. I think it's so important because I've been doing this for 11 years now, and, and one of the the things that I always wanted to strive to do was to reach younger people, to tell them mm. that they're okay, and to give them the power that they already have, to show them what they have so that they don't get to be in their 40s and 50s and have to yeah. undo all of this stuff that is now governing their life and holding them back. Yeah, that's incredible. You mentioned the pandemic. What are some of the things that you're teaching your followers about navigating uncertainty and difficult times? Oh, that's a good question. So before I knew about the pandemic or anything, I wrote a chapter in the book called Be Unsure. Um, It's chapter five, I think page 65, if you have the book there. And um, Be Unsure talks about several things. For one, I got to interview the amazing Stephanie Beatrice, this incredible actress, um, about who's who's openly bisexual and a big activist and I got her to talk about um us being okay with uncertainty about our sexuality and embracing that uncertainty and not feeling pressure to label ourselves and I also talked a bit about um the sort of zen practice I've read about um from Eckhart Tolle and others about being getting okay with being uncertain about our futures and stuff. And I, little did I know how relevant that would be. I was thinking a lot about how from a very young age, we're asked by, you know, adults and um, I think especially adults, but younger people too sometimes, what are you going to be when you grow up? What college do you want to go to? What do you want to major in? What, what do you want your job to be? You know, where are you going to grad school? And it can be really, really overwhelming. And I think that, You know, a lot of us have no idea what we want to do, but there's so much pressure to have it all figured out from like high school. I mean, in high school, they're already asking you what you're going to major in, which I think is Mm -hmm. insane because it's impossible to know. Like I'm in college now. I just started as a freshman and I'm kind of shooting in the dark on my major. It's something I'm really interested in, but that could change. So in the chapter, be unsure. I wanted to let other girls know and boys that, um, you know, we don't have to have everything figured out. And there's something pretty magical about letting ourselves be okay with the uncertainty because things can arise that we never imagined because we were open. So that's what that chapter is all about. And, you know, now it just feels more relevant than ever because we don't know what tomorrow's going to be like. And I think the pandemic sort of made us all realize overnight, like, oh my God, we can't, 
we can't control basically anything. Like so much more is out of our control than we ever knew. I was having that conversation with a friend the other day, and we were talking about how we were asked, like you said, at 17, 18 years old to decide the rest of our lives. And when you're that age, you have no idea what you want to be doing. And and I think the message is, and and I share this with people, you know, everybody thinks life is A to Z and it's a straight line, but it's okay to start on one path and adjust the sails, go in a different direction. It's okay to change. You know, I reinvented mm-hmm. myself in my 40s because I was wow. on one particular path and it no longer served me for who I was mm-hmm. at that point in life. So it's okay to start yeah. in one direction and make adjustments along the way. I love that. I think that's another thing that a lot of, you know, parents and other adults don't think about when they ask us these questions from a young age. So yeah, just, I think not putting pressure on ourselves is, is key, is key, because then we can start, you know, if we, if we put pressure on ourselves, we can start feeling guilty or stuff. Like I know a lot of people in my class already as freshmen are like, shoot, I need to pick a major. I don't know what I want to do. And I, I always remind them and myself, like, None of us know really what we want to do yet, (laughs) even as freshmen. We don't have anything figured out. Let's just do our best to follow what we like right now. But And, you know, there's also so much pressure in general, like, in this job market. So I just, I, you know, I feel... I feel badly for my my whole generation because this is just such a crazy time to navigate. Um, But, yeah, I think that, you know, putting pressure on ourselves to have it all figured out makes it even makes it even harder for sure. Sadie, before we run out of time, you had mentioned earlier about how you got interested in the role of food in our life and and supporting our health and well-being. And, you know, today, girls and and women of any age, you know, we don't enjoy food without guilt or remorse or even self-loathing because we think that we're going to become fat or less than that image that's portrayed to us as a beautiful woman. So what do you Mm -hmm. say to young girls today, how should they be looking at food? What is a healthy perspective for them to have? That's the big question. I think that it looks different for each person, but what I've noticed that's really helpful is sort of looking at food, and it's been helpful in my own life, is is looking at food as this fun, exciting new thing that can add to our lives and sort of trying to approach it that way in every facet of my life. So, um, for me, that means baking desserts because for me, desserts are my favorite kind of food and eating them is eating them is super, superfluous. It's not mm-hmm. a necessity in my life. It's just for fun. So for me, baking myself desserts and enjoying them is like this, it's this sort of process that, that makes food just a really joyful aspect of my life. So for me, it's baking, you know, for a lot of people, it's going to a farmer's market and picking out some really exciting new ingredients I've never heard of before and going home and cooking a meal with that. But I think whatever it is, try to find that part of your, you know, your being that food just sparks and like what kind of food does that. And then explore that and play around with new flavors and ingredients and textures. Try creating, you know, you can use other people's recipes, try creating your own recipes. But I think getting cooking in any in any fashion, even if it's one breakfast a week, just getting cooking can help us sort of get closer to the food and remove remove some of that, you know, guilt and shame around it. I don't think it's a, a panacea, but I think that it can sort of take us one step closer to embracing food as this more of a friend in our lives. The book is Whole Girl, Live Vibrantly, Love Your Entire Self, and Make Friends with Food. If you'd like to learn more about Sadie and her work, you can visit wholegirl.com. Sadie, in about 30 seconds, what's the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? What I would like to leave you with is that you are whole and complete right now. And, you know, in Whole Girl, we explore all of our moods, all parts of ourselves, and how to fuel them every day. So I hope you can check it out, and thank you for listening. Sadie, thank you so much for joining us. Such an important message that you're sharing, so thank you. Thank you so much. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path. Personalize actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, 
exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. to live a happy, productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Odette Coronel, a coach who helps people create the life and relationships they want. She is here today to discuss having the right daily habits to lead a happier life. Welcome, Odette. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, Joan. Thank you so much for having me on your show. So Odette, today we're going to be talking about habits, and I want to start off by getting your take on why you believe it's important for us to establish good habits. Well, Joan, as human beings, we are all creatures of habit. So whether we realize it or not, we have, we all have habits. A habit is an automatic behavior that is triggered by something else. So, you know, the infinite intelligence of the universe or God made us this way in order to function in the world without having to think about every tiny little thing we do. It saves us time from thinking about a task and making the decision to do something and then having to make that decision over and over again. Now, this is wonderful because it makes life easier. It saves us time. We wake up in the morning and we brush our teeth. We don't have to think about it and decide. We just do it. It's as if we are on autopilot. So, The issue is it's deciding whether the habits that we have are good for us, how they affect our overall well-being, happiness, and success, or are they negatively affecting our lives and keeping us from achieving our goals? It's important to develop that self-awareness and be aware of the habits that we do have and the ones that we should be creating. For example, if we're trying to lose weight, but we're in the habit of eating a piece of cake for dessert after dinner every night, that habit may not get us any closer to our achieving our goal of losing weight and may actually, in fact, be contributing to preventing us from doing so. So again, we want to be aware of our habits and make sure that our habits are not harming us. We want to make sure that our habits are contributing to our overall health and well-being and bringing us closer to our goals and to becoming the person we want to be. When we don't establish the habits that we do want, we leave room for habits that have a negative effect on our lives. So the type of habits that you just described, and and you just said when we don't make room for these good habits, we're left with the bad habits. So that's one impact that it will have on our life. But can you elaborate on that a little bit more? What happens when we're only left with bad habits? Well, there's a quote by the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle that says, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. Another great quote is, I'm not sure who said it, but it's, we first make our habits and then our habits make us. So we have to realize that we are what we do repeatedly. It's really essential to establish good habits because we become in life and we get and create in life. It's a direct result of what we do consistently, our habits. So you don't go into debt if you go over budget ordering from Amazon just one time. Um, And in contrast, you don't become a professional baseball player because you played Little League when you were a kid or become valedictorian of your class because you occasionally get a few A's on your report card. So we have to really pay attention to what we do or what we should be doing over and over again. It's really important that we audit our habits and consciously decide which ones are good for us and which ones we want to continue Um, and which ones are leading us to a result we're not intending to create and we really don't want. Successful people and people that are happy and satisfied with their lives, who create the lives they want, have mastered the habits that create the momentum of success and happiness. Do you have an exercise or strategies that you can offer to help us cultivate good habits? Uh, Yes, uh, Joan. It takes good habits to make positive changes in your life. But Forming new habits or replacing old ones does take time. It's like crossing a bridge. You have to make your way across 
slowly one step at a time. If you try to just jump across the other side, you will fail. You won't make it across. It'll probably be pretty painful as well. So small steps and consistency is key. The first step in building a new habit is to focus on one habit at a time that will positively affect your overall well-being or bring you closer to your goals. Associate a cue or a trigger with the new habit. Remember, a habit is an automatic behavior that is triggered by something else. For example, when I wanted to start a daily habit of exercising in the morning, I would wake up, get dressed in my workout clothes, and put on my sneakers. For me, my sneakers were the cue or the trigger to help me make a habit of exercising. An exercise I do with my clients to figure out what habits they should be implementing is doing a life audit. The purpose of the life audit is to establish where you are right now in every area of your life, what you value most and where you want to be. Once you're clear on what you value most and where you want to be, you can work on replacing habits that are not helping you get to where you want to be and establish small habits that with consistency will make big changes in your life. The areas of your life that you should audit are family and friends, business and career, health, finances, romance, and personal development. Being aware of the habits that you have and being intentional with the habits you create are key to creating the life you want and accomplishing the goals you want to create without having to decide each day, each moment, what you should be doing. Once the habits you want are created and implemented, working towards accomplishing your goals becomes automatic. Odette, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Odette and her work, you can visit odettecoronel.com. Or as always, to hear more from Odette, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Odette. We'll be right back. Do you see the value in what you have? I recently made a virtual presentation to a group, and after I was done presenting, we had a discussion about interpersonal relationships. During our conversation, many people expressed concern about how easily they are being replaced. They felt like there was no value given to them and or a relationship by a friend, partner, family member, or employer. Hearing so many people express the same feeling made me start to wonder if we have become a society of disposables. It reminded me of an expression my mother used to say, out with the old and in with the new. This is Joan Herman here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. It's time to see the value in what you have. It seems like just about every aspect of our life today is disposable. We throw away televisions, computers, clothing, phones, food, furniture, and so much more. By contrast, when I was growing up, we fixed everything. There was a neighborhood television repairman. We ate leftovers for dinner. We took our shoes to the local shoemaker for new heels. Baby diapers were cloth and appliances were kept until they could no longer be repaired. We drove the same car until it died on the road and marriages lasted until death do us part. While it is true that we have more conveniences and opportunities than our parents and grandparents, I believe our ancestors had something that many of us lack the ability to attach to and appreciate what they had. Today, we want immediate gratification. If it's broken, an old model, or not working the way we want, we simply throw it out and replace it with something new, something shiny and upgraded. Is it possible that we are carrying our new disposable mentality into our relationships? How many people do you know that cut off contact with someone with whom they had a disagreement? They end the relationship and find someone new to fill the void. How many marriages suffer from infidelity because of boredom or not having a particular need met? One spouse moves on to someone new and creates a new family, often breaking ties with their old partner and even their children. How many employers replace or demote an employee for a minor infraction without giving that person a second chance? They hire a replacement. If any of these scenarios sound familiar to you, and I know they do to me, Perhaps it's time to examine how we interact with others. Are we looking for a quick fix? Would we be willing to cut someone out of our life because we are angry? Are we considering replacing a spouse or have already done so before exploring every avenue to repair the relationship? Would we fire an employee without giving it a second thought? If you believe you may have adopted a disposable mentality, Now's the time to make a change. Start nurturing your relationships. Put in the time and do the necessary work. Nothing worth having comes easily. Appreciate and value what you have, material items and relationships, 
and stop keeping an open eye looking for something better. Empathize with others before taking action. Repair something before tossing it in the trash. If you feel like someone who has been replaced, remember, we can't change or control other people and how they behave, but we can change our behavior. We can change the way we respond and the way we treat others. And little by little, perhaps, our treatment of others may just start a movement in a more positive direction. Who knows? One day, we may learn to treasure the old and forget the new. Thank you for spending this time with me. For more inspiring tips, visit joanherman.com. At highway speeds, the average text takes your eyes off the road for about five seconds. That's enough time to travel the length of a football field. Stop texts. Stop rex.org. This is WNYF, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Change is inevitable, so it's vital for us to develop internal strengths like self-worth, determination, and kindness. These make us resilient, the foundation of lasting well-being in a changing world. With an approach that is grounded in the science of positive neuroplasticity, today's guest, Dr. Rick Hansen, explains how to create a deep sense of contentment. Dr. Hansen is a psychologist and New York Times bestselling author. Welcome, Dr. Hansen. Thanks for joining us. Joan, it's a pleasure to be here. So, Rick, what we're about to discuss today is rooted in the science of positive neuroplasticity. Can you explain what that is to us? It's a mouthful, but uh-huh. what it really means uh, is essentially that our brain and our nervous system is designed to be changed by our experiences, and the result is learning, broadly defined. Learning how to use chopsticks or navigate a tricky conversation with your brother-in-law, or learning, honestly, how to be happier, how to be wiser, how to be more loving, how to be uh, more compassionate to yourself. Any one of those kinds of positive changes must involve changing your brain for the better. And in the book, I get into the details of how people can actually tap the power of positive neuroplasticity to turn everyday experiences into lasting strengths inside themselves, hardwired into their own nervous system. Well, isn't the science of neuroplasticity, it's exciting because I remember not that long ago, we believed that the brain was set and as you got older, you lost function and and we really didn't have an understanding about the power that we have to create new circuitry in the brain. I know, it's really remarkable. Um, You can do things with your mind, and maybe we'll talk about them, that strengthen existing connections between neurons, that grow new neurons that bring more blood flow and thus oxygen and glucose to busy parts of the brain that do things. You can even do things with your own mind that will change the expression of genes deep down inside your own DNA, inside your own neurons. Rick, in your book, Resilient, you write that we develop mental resources in two stages. First, we need to experience what we want to grow. And second, we must convert that passing experience into a lasting change in the nervous system. So how do we go about doing that? How do we create lasting change in the nervous system? You're right at the important question. So the relatively straightforward part is the first step. Have some kind of beneficial experience in the first place. Maybe it's a good intention, or maybe you realize something in a relationship, or maybe you just feel calm and strong inside yourself, or a moment of gratitude, whatever it might be. That's usually the pretty straightforward part. Most people are having many mildly beneficial experiences in a day. The important part is what we forget all the time, which is the second step, which is that it's important to stay with the experience, feel it in your body, and recognize what's enjoyable or rewarding about it. Because those factors, extending the duration of the experience for a breath or two or three, uh, getting more of a sense of it emotionally and physically, and also finding what is pleasurable about it or meaningful to you about it. Those three factors, the duration, the embodiment, and the reward value of the experience are known to science to heighten the learning process, to steepen your growth curve, as you go through the experiences you're already having. This means that at a time when so many people feel pushed around by external forces, and also so many people feel kind of like they're running on empty in many ways inside, we have the power every day actually to fill ourselves up from the inside out, making ourselves stronger along the way. 
So this strength is what makes us resilient. And how do you define resiliency? What does it mean to be resilient? Yeah, resilient means both surviving the worst day of your life and thriving every day of your life. In other words, resilience is what um, helps us manage change, which you brought up in the very beginning of this conversation. Resilience helps us manage change um, and challenges. And if you think about it, just to have a job or do an interview with a radio personality like I'm doing right now, Mm -hmm. I've got to be a little bit resilient to be able to do this. Uh, Settle sibling quarrels, um, deal with a boss, deal with a health problem, deal with poverty or or discrimination. Um, Any kind of issue like that requires resilience. And resilience comes from underlying psychological strengths like mindfulness, gratitude, motivation, or courage. And the good news for me is that we can become more self-reliant. There's a lot about positive psychology or self-help in general that to me is overly positive. You know, it's like a magic carpet ride. Just do gratitude practice and you'll be fine. Well, gratitude is good, but we also need to develop inner capabilities, strengths for coping and adapting and continuing even when things are difficult. Rick, when two people go through the same experience, why does one person appear to move through it with ease when another person might be stuck? So, for example, I went through tremendous challenges all at one time. My marriage ended, my mother died, my sister died, my son left for college. And in that time, at the time, I should say, I was really broken. But I was able to move through it and do the work that I'm doing now. And yeah. someone said to me, anyone, like I shouldn't be here is really what they were saying. Mm-hmm. Some other person would have really fallen apart. So what is it that made me be yeah. able to move through it that way? And someone else may have really been stuck in that challenge time. Yeah, probably about a third of what enabled you to be that way was built into your DNA. Mm-hmm. That's what the research shows in general. But the other two thirds were the inner strengths, the capabilities, the outlook, the internalized sense of people who loved you, for example, that you acquired over the years. And that gets to a larger point, which is that probably about two-thirds of who we are is actually under our own influence. That's both hopeful and it takes us right into a kind of old-school recognition of responsibility. It's up to us to help ourselves grow and gain as much as possible every day. And then it's really interesting, you know, it's like in athletics, uh, what you train in off the field is what you draw on on the field. And as as you really experience directly, at any moment, things can happen. And it could be a perfect storm. The bottom could fall out in one area of your life, while at the same time, you've got bad luck in another area of your life. And then what do you do? And at that point, to me, It's important to have developed resources outside ourselves, you know, like money in the bank and uh, fences, you know, between us and our neighbors or, you know, more broadly, a stop sign at the corner. But that said, what most makes the difference is the resources we've built up inside ourselves. And so for me, the takeaway point here is to look for, you know, you cannot do anything about the past. The only thing under our influence, really, is how much we grow or learn today. That's it. But... The difference between not growing at all or learning at all or becoming stronger at all by the end of the day versus growing a little bit today, becoming a little wiser, becoming a little more skillful with other people, becoming a little happier inside yourself, that little bit, day plus day plus day plus day, makes all the difference in your life. And I bet you yourself did a lot of that kind of thing along the way so that you had more inside you when, you know, the storm hit. Well, and you know, Rick, at the time, I didn't know that I was as strong as I was. And, and I say that because I, I bet there are a lot of people listening right now that are going through challenges who don't believe they can make it to the next day and the day after. So for those people, in addition to the things that you were just mentioning, what do you suggest they do in order to heal from a painful experience? Because we all have the ability. So what can they do? Yeah, it's interesting. Well, so the book Resilient grew out of this online experiential program I created called The Foundations of Wellbeing, which surprised me because it came wildly popular. And I think what made it popular is that it's experiential. So if a person is going to recover from negative emotions, from anxiety or a blue mood or feeling hurt or feeling resentful, the takeaway point is that it's really important 
to bring experiences of what are positive in two ways. So you look for experiences that are first and foremost authentic, no rose-colored glasses, no positive thinking. They must be genuine experiences of gratitude or calming or ease or pleasure, just the ordinary opportunities in daily life to experience something good, something beneficial. And then when you experience it, take it into yourself in its own right. That's the first thing to do, because that will build psychological resources inside you. The second thing to do, which is a very powerful method, you can be aware of both negative material off to the side of your mind, like let's say old feelings of hurt or current feelings of, say, worry, while in the front of your awareness, big and prominent, be aware of something positive that's kind of the antidote to what's negative, or it's sort of matched to it in some way, like feeling calm and reassured if you've got anxiety off in the corner, or feeling that people do care about you if you have feelings of hurt off in the corner. And in the famous saying from neuroscience to finish here, neurons that fire together, wire together. And that means that if we can be aware of two things at once, small negative off to the side, big positive in the front of awareness, the positive will start to associate with the negative to gradually calm it, ease it, bring context to it, and eventually even replace it. And any single time a person does that for, you know, half a minute at a time, any single time we do that usually will not be utterly transformational but gradually accumulating. The brain is a vast associational network. So if you just keep associating positive to negative, again, a lot of research shows you can gradually ease it inside yourself and eventually heal yourself. The book is Resilient, How to Grow an Unshakable Core of Calm, Strength, and Happiness by Dr. Rick Hansen. If you'd like more information about Rick and his work, you can visit rickhansen.net. Rick, in about 30 seconds or less, what's the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? I would suggest that you go through your day and five or ten times a day, slow down for something that's beneficial. A mild experience usually that's pleasurable or useful. Slow down for it and take a few breaths to kind of marinate in it so it becomes a part of you. And when you do that, you'll get a double benefit. You'll both take into yourself, gradually hardwiring into your nervous system, these psychological strengths. And second, it'll change your outlook because then you'll be going through your day looking for opportunities. Rick, thank you so much for joining us. As I said in the beginning, change is inevitable. So it's vital for us to develop internal strengths. That's a foundation that makes us resilient. So thank you for giving us some strategies to get the job done. Thank you, Joan. It's been a privilege to be here. We'll be right back. I opened up my social media this morning and saw a number of small business owners dancing to music, pointing at boxes that popped up and sharing it with some smooth music. I started to wonder if I was living in an MTV video and nobody told me. This is Susan McLaughlin from SMC Ventures. And if you are confused why everyone is dancing on Instagram except you, I've got some advice. You don't have to dance to make an impact on Instagram. Instagram has many different ways for businesses to reach their followers online and video is just one of them. Another platform called TikTok started this trend and it's a lot of fun. The question is, does it work for your business? I'll admit, I've done a few dance-like videos, but mostly I've settled into using the Instagram Reels as short, small videos to give social media or motivational tips. Instagram also has a longer video offering called IGTV, Instagram television, which allows businesses to produce longer videos that can help explain their brand and give important information without all the dancing and pointing. Instagram has also added a section called Guides that allows businesses to add multiple posts as a flip-through brochure or just static photos to make your point come across. The bottom line is this. When you are looking at Instagram, remember that it's a very visual social media platform. You can't post without a photo or a video. So make sure the one for your businesses show you and your products in the best light. If you need help with your social media for your business, give us a call. You can check out our website at smcventures.biz or visit us on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. This is Susan McLaughlin from SMC Ventures, simple social media.
Is it hard for you to make a decision at times? Or does it just seem difficult to solve a problem, whether at work or in your family life? Hi, I'm Jessica L. Conrad. I have a master's in holistic health studies and I am an ICF certified coach. I support all women at a crossroads in life by helping them find clarity and direction. I specialize in endometriosis and infertility. Here is a technique to try next time you find yourself in this situation. It is called the three-step process. It is three simple questions to ask yourself. Number one, what worked well in the past? Number two, why did it work well? Which strengths and natural gifts of yours did you use? And number three, how can you use those strengths and gifts to help with this issue or achieve your current goal? To learn more, to book a free discovery call or ask a question, please visit my website at jessicalconrad.com. There, you will also be able to download other free gifts to help you move forward in life. Do you suffer from ingrown toenails? Hi, I am Dr. Anand Joshi, podiatrist practicing in Woodland Park, New Jersey at Advanced Foot Care of NJ LLC. Ingrown toenails occur when the toenail starts to grow into the nail groove. This can cause significant pain and discomfort. They may become infected if left untreated. Wearing badly fitting shoes usually causes ingrown toenails. The pressure from the shoes that are too narrow at the top or too tight from the side can put extra pressure on the toenails. Other causes that include toenails that are not trimmed properly, such as cutting the toenails too short or trauma to the feet due to activity including running. Having a family history of ingrown toenails can also increase a person's risk. There are several ways to treat and prevent ingrown toenails. Cutting the toenails straight across after a bath when the nails are soft. Avoid cutting the nails in a rounded pattern as it can increase the risk of inward growth. Wearing proper fitting shoes that do not have a pointy tip will prevent worsening of your ingrown toenail. If at-home care does not improve the condition, or if your toe becomes swollen, red, or painful, please visit a podiatrist who can provide the proper care, or even antibiotics. If you would like more information, or to schedule an appointment, please visit our website, footpainnj.com. productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining us today to talk about preparing for an upcoming surgery is Lori Gardner, a registered nurse, patient advocate, and board-certified health and wellness coach. Lori assists people with all aspects of their health care. Welcome, Lori. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here, John. So, Lori, surgery is a big deal. Before anyone agrees to having surgery, what should be considered? Well, first, Joan, they should be aware of the details of the surgery, what the benefits and risks are, and what would happen if they didn't have the surgery. You know, ask your surgeon if you were to have the surgery, how long does the benefit last? People don't always ask that question, but you could have a surgery and maybe it's going to last two years, but that's important information to know. Find out if there are different techniques for the surgery and why your surgeon does it the way he or she does over another. Also ask if there are alternatives to surgery, such as medical or non-surgical alternatives, or could a watchful waiting procedure be the option? They should find out how many of these types of surgeries the surgeon does each year and compare it to other surgeons, especially at those at big centers for excellence. You know, do you want to have a doc that does 20 surgeries a year or 150? Uh, also, you should do research on the surgeon's outcomes. There's a lot of websites that you can check out to see what their outcomes are, their complication rates, and also check on the hospital's complication infection rates. This can be important as well. Find out what type of anesthesia you're going to be given and who the anesthesiologist is and what their credentials are. I usually like to recommend they ask to see and meet this physician before surgery. They don't always have the option, but you need to ask. Also ask, very important, what is the recovery like? How long will you be in the hospital? Will you need to go to a rehab facility before going home? Is any special equipment needed after surgery or home care assistance? It's equally important to ask the cost of the surgery. Make sure the surgeon, hospital, anesthesiologist, and any other specialists involved are in your insurance network. If you don't, you could be hit with some serious bills. So a lot of research to be done, but um, most times we have enough ample time to do this research just don't always stop at the first one. So whenever surgery is suggested, is it a good idea to get a second opinion? Definitely, Joan. A second opinion can be so useful. And nowadays, many insurance companies require it because we all realize that more information means 
better decision making. I usually recommend getting a center, um, getting second opinion at a center of excellence where they actually see more cases, they might have more experience. It's just more information in your bucket to make a decision with because the more information you have, the better decision you can make. Sometimes actually a third opinion may be needed for complex situations, John. So Lori, if it's determined that surgery is the best course of treatment, how does someone prepare for an upcoming surgery? I stress that it's important not only to be prepared physically, but also mentally for an upcoming surgery. You really need to follow any of the preoperative instructions the surgeon and the medical team provide you, but you can do more for yourself. You can eat plenty of protein to promote wound healing and boost your immune system. Eat a high-fiber diet of fruits and vegetables to keep your GI system healthy when you're not moving as much after surgery. Avoid sugar and processed foods. Increase your physical activity ahead of time so you really are in pretty good physical stamina, have good physical stamina before you um, go to surgery. Lose any extra weight you might have. Get lots of sleep. Discuss any fears or anxieties you have with a friend. It's important to mentally be prepared. I will add that this one is a big one people don't always think of, but envision and focus on your positive outcome you want to get from your body and how it will heal well after surgery. And lastly, I would say that we always put together with our clients, and I recommend everybody have what we call a hospital toolkit bag, almost like a grab-and-go bag. In that bag, you have a list of your medications with the dosage, how often you take it, any supplements you take, list your medical conditions, any kind of past surgeries you have, insurance cards or copies of your advanced directive, healthcare proxy document, pulse, power of attorney, name of your emergency contact person, list of your physicians, and certainly a notebook and pen to take notes when in the hospital, or hopefully you have a loved one that can do that because a lot's going on in that hospital. If you'd like to learn more about Lori, about her work, about planning for an upcoming surgery, you can visit her website, healthlinkadvocates.com, or as always, to hear more from Lori, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Lori. <music> joining us, I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC.